Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Different episode for you today. We're going to get to a conversation with Simon Holt here in a little bit. Simon is one of the few people in the world who has played all 100 courses on golf. I believe he goes off the Golf Magazine top 100 list. His list that he follows is the 2013 list. I figured with the recent publication of the new top 100 list, the Golf Magazine list, it would be interesting to talk with someone who is on that panel, understands how the rankings work, and has played every single golf course, not on the current list, but on the 2013 one. And uh, we talk about some of those differences between the list, what's changed from year over year, and uh, he's about as unpretentious of a guy that I can imagine that you can find uh, to speak on this topic. Plus, he's got a Scottish accent, so it's going to be you guys are going to love it. He's a awesome dude. We're going to be catching up with him here in April, hopefully in Scotland. And uh, he has some great insights on playing golf around the world, how he's managed to get on these golf courses, and uh, some of the top experiences. Also, some of the parts that are less glamorous about it. I found it really interesting when I talked to him uh, a few months ago about doing this, about some of the trips he was getting ready to take that he wasn't looking forward to just because of all the logistics and the hard-to-reach places uh, for some of the golf courses. Before we launch it real quick, I want to tell you guys about Quater by Travis Matthew. That's C-U-A-T-E-R. It is a new premium performance brand focused on creating versatile, comfortable footwear and accessories. They sent us some of their, it's called The Legend, their new golf shoe, and it is so clean, crispy white. It's nothing too, it's not too fancy. Like they, they noticed that a lot of performance golf shoes on the market they tend to be over-designed with exaggerated technology, and they set out to combat that trend towards the unnecessary complication. They're incredibly comfortable. They look like old school, like I have the white ones, the white um, kind of old, old shoes, that, but just minus the big tongue that you used to see on the old shoes. And I, I looked at them like, that doesn't look very comfortable, and I wore them, and they are perfectly comfortable, and they're pretty much, they are my leading shoe that I'm wearing on the golf course right now. They also have uh, an off-course shoe, which is called the Daily. It's kind of like a, a I don't want to describe, I don't know what to describe the material. Kind of like a cloth-based wool. Wool, that's the word I'm looking for, wool. I knew, I knew there was a word for that. Very casual, very comfortable, um, and it goes with any outfits. And best of all, they're offering 15% off uh, your first purchases for first-time customers at Quater.com. That's C-U-A-T-E-R. Again, that's 15% off your first Quater purchase when you visit Quater.com. So please do check that out. Quater is by Travis Matthew. Been wearing some of their shoes for a while, and we're pumped with the uh, the new ones that are coming out. And without any further delay here, let's get to Simon Holt on playing the top 100 golf courses in the world. All right, man, I got a task for you that uh, I believe is probably harder than playing the top 100 golf courses in the world. It's you got to talk to me about it for I don't know how long it's going to take, but you got to come off and not sound like a complete douchebag. I don't know if you're going to be capable of doing that, Mr. Simon Holt. Well, I know it's a, it's a daily challenge in every walk of life for me, <laughs> but um, no, it, like I know you're sort of asking that semi-seriously and um it is quite hard sometimes. It's like, it's essentially, it is, does end up being a name dropping exercise of all the courses that 
everyone I ever speak to has always dreamt of playing, and me too. And uh, yeah, it's a little strange, um, but it's cool. And you know, it finished earlier this year, and that that was kind of a relief in one way. I wasn't really chasing it out to start with, as, as I'm sure we'll come to, but uh, it, it's it was a great experience, and it was certainly fun along the way. Well, that's yeah. Let's let's go into that. I guess you know, in talking to you and leading leading up to you wrapping it up, I was I was surprised, and maybe I shouldn't have been at, at your um, apathy is not the right word, but lack of real enthusiasm to finish it out. I would have thought you would have been really excited to do it. You, it almost seemed like at the end it was a checking the box kind of thing for you. So I want to let's get into that. When did you set out to do it, or did you get like pretty far into the list and say, "Oh, I, I'm actually I'm on my way here"? How did you How did you set out to do this? Yeah, so I mean, people ask a lot. Oh, when did you start doing it? And I was lucky, as you know, uh, grew up at North Berwick, uh, so grew up at this wonderful golf course that's, uh, you know, just been rated. I think it's up to thirty-seven now, as of yesterday, in the new uh, golf magazine rankings. So I was really lucky to grow up at a place like North Berwick, first and foremost. So the first that was the first golf course I ever played. Um, so if people say how long, it's really from the first day I played golf, which is you know however long ago that was, way over sort of twenty five years. But really in earnest, I started about three years ago. Well, till the point I finished, so maybe fall of twenty sixteen, I really focused on. Okay, a few people were kind of baiting me about it, and uh, I was just like, I'm just going to get this done. And I sort of mapped it out, and it took me about two and a half years from that point to get the remaining. I was on thirty-five at that point, and it took me uh, two and a half years to get the remaining sixty-five finished to get up to a hundred. Jeez, that's a lot of that's a lot of top one hundreds in a in a three year stretch. What? How can you? Uh, the, the the question's going to be burning on everyone's mind. So, how the hell do you get access to play all these courses? Well, I always joke that you meet a guy in the locker room of the place before. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that doesn't really help anyone that's listening. But um, it's just such a small circle in golf. As you know, you work in golf, I, you know, uh, and anyone that works in golf or will say it's a small circle. And it's the same with these clubs, especially like the U.S. Um, the U.S. golf scene. Well, tell us what you do within the golf industry as well. I think that'll help bring it together. Um, well, you know, with one of my friends, like we run a, a golf tour company. So predominantly Americans that travel with us, 95% of our clients are American and we're based in St. Andrews and Edinburgh. So we have an office in Edinburgh now as well, which I'm sat right now. Um, and yeah, we like to think we do a really good job of bringing people to Scotland and Ireland and England on occasion where they ask, which I'll, I'll speak about later. is the most undermarketed uh, golf destination as far as I'm concerned. And I know you've been there recently. Um, and then we did a little bit. Uh, we do a little bit of uh, Scot- uh, Australia and New Zealand in the winter. Obviously, seasons- seasonally, that works really well for us. But all the golf courses that we get people to are public access golf courses, which is great. You know, most of the courses on the list you can go and play, especially the ones in the UK and Ireland and Australia and New Zealand. Uh, the US is a little more tricky. Um, so I was possibly lucky uh, growing up caddying at North Berwick and, and the old course. I was at University of St. Andrews and just kind of meeting nice people, great people that were very kindly said, hey, when you're in the States, if you're ever in San Francisco, come and look me up. So eventually I just started taking people up on all those very kind invites and um, it just kind of snowballed. And I think being from Scotland, like living here in Scotland, growing up playing here and, you know, on my good days, not being too bad at golf, then people, you sort of stood out in the room a little bit. So I'll be a say, I don't know. Uh, and this is where the name dropping starts, I guess. So I'll be, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> yeah, here we go. Everyone fasten up. So maybe you're at, you know, Seminole. 
and you're sat there and you're chatting with some people and your accent stands out and you're young relative to the rest of the crowd and they're like, hey, what are you doing here? And someone maybe tells you the story and they say, oh, well, I've got a buddy that's a member at, you know, next time you're in the Hamptons, I've got a buddy that's a member at Shinnecock, you know, just look me up and he'll help you out there. And people were just always almost like really willing to help. And I, I never asked. And I kind of set myself a couple of rules on that um, as well. But, huh. you know. Well, are you the first, if I remember right, you're the, are you the first British person to play the top 100 courses in the world? Yeah, and that, that blew me away. So I, I think as of today, there's, I think about 48 people ever that have finished a golf magazine world top 100 list. And the reason they choose that list is because that's the oldest world top 100 list. I think Golf Digest started the lists in kind of the 60s. And these sort of lists were started as, I think it was the 200 toughest courses in America. And believe it or not, courses like, I looked into it, courses like Shinnecock didn't even appear on that list. Can you imagine like the 200 toughest courses in America? Exactly. So then you fast forward and these lists kind of became more and more... um, uh, professional, for want of a better word, more um, refined as time went on, and Golf Magazine took up the mantle of the the first World Top 100 rankings, which is now done every two years. So anyway, 47, 48 people have done it. I was the 45th, I believe, but the first person from the UK, which really surprised me. But then when you think about it, it's so biased towards America because it's an American publication. I, I don't don't mean that's wrong, but there's something. I guess, you know, maybe 45, 50 courses that are in America. So for someone living in Scotland or the UK, that's a lot of trips to America to, to go and play golf. And a lot of, like you said at the top two, the, the only real private ones other than maybe one or two in Scotland and then maybe one that I can think of in Australia. Like the U.S. is the only place that has places that like you need an invite to. You know, the rest of them, like you said, you can you can pretty much call up. And that's what I think I've played more of the top 100 courses outside of America than I have inside just because it's just so much easier to get access to. Yeah, it's funny. It's kind of a fun exercise for people like because a lot of people go, oh, I must have played a lot. And, and that's like going back to the conversation of how I started someone said to me oh um they actually asked me to be a golf magazine rater about six seven eight years ago because I just work in the industry I see a lot of golf courses and I played a, a lot of the seriously like big names um and they said oh as long as you played 50 you can be a rater so I counted and maybe it was like more sort of I had a really high concentration of top 25 and I'd only played 35 when I say only that surprised me and that was what started the kind of quest to be like because i said well okay i don't want to be a rater politely decline and i want to finish all top 100 uh, without being a rater and by uh no cold calls like all invitations all people i knew which kind of made it harder but it felt like the natural way to do it so you were never getting there by being a pest people hopefully enjoy playing golf with you and recommended you to friends, which was fun. Cause then you play with great people all the time. Well, I was going to say, is it, is it as fun as it seems, I guess you setting out to do it. And again, you kind of grew up with this golf background and had, had access and played a lot of great golf courses before you set out to do it. But what, it, what was the journey like? Was it more fun than you were anticipating? Less fun, more stressful? Like what is, what, how do you look back on that time? Yeah, yeah, I I see it as a, sh- a hugely fun exercise. Uh, I call it an exercise. It wasn't even an exercise. I was just like going to play golf courses. I always dreamt of playing. What's hard about that? Right. But, um, it did get to a point, and you sort of alluded to it. Like you know, you were checking boxes, and some places, I'll be honest, it did feel like that. And that's at the point where I pumped the brakes a little. I was like, what am I doing? You know, I remember being at Kiara Island. Um, 
and I was on my own. And it's obviously a resort course. It's busy. I was amongst a bunch of four balls. And I had this really pleasant gentleman as a caddy, great guy. And we played four holes. And it taken about an hour and 10 minutes for four holes. And I was ready to like pull my hair and teeth out. And I just wanted to walk <laughs> off the course. I was so bored. And I just thought to myself, what am I doing here? Because golf's about like a shared experience. And uh, also the fact that I just ponied up the best part of probably $500 to play. I was like, what am I doing here? And then he sort of picked up on that and he goes, Hey, well, are you okay? I was like, you know, this is great company with you, but it's just slow. And he says, well, you know, we kind of run the show here and I'm sort of the second most senior caddy. Do you want to start playing three groups? Cause I'll just say to the other caddies, we'll just play three. I was like, I'd love that. We played the rest of the golf course in one hour, 45 minutes. So we played, <laughs> we played the whole round in three hours, having taken an hour and a bit for the first four um so don't get me on to pace of play at these golf courses but um I, I don't know at that point i did think i was checking boxes and kind of with a list that i had uh, and i have no uh, i'm not shy about saying courses that i had no interest in playing um so and that sort of directed me which list to choose so i did the golf magazine list from 2013 um i really had no interest in going to thailand to play the courses in thailand and, and that's really infectious i've not visited the course but enough people that played the course in Thailand that was on the list. Uh, I think it's Iodal Links, I think is how you pronounce it. I- I'm sure it's lovely. I'm sure the people there are lovely. But the pictures that I'd seen and the people that had played there had said to me, possibly shouldn't be in the list. And I'd been to a couple other places that had let me down too, like, you know, Tavis Dunes in Portugal. Again, treated me like gold, played with a lovely man, but I was scratching my head as to why it was in the World Top 100. Um, so this new list that's just come out, um is refreshing because it seems to be a little bit more of a crowd pleaser list in a good way Hmm. Um, but yeah um it it was great fun overall well that's yeah you touched on a lot of things i do want to talk about i don't want to necessarily start with the negative but the the lists itself are very complicated well an easy one here with the new list that just came out do you fear a new list coming out and a course being on there that you haven't played no, because it's not really like that. I'm, I'm generally not. It sounds like you know, whatever me saying this. Like, I'm not really a box checker. Sure. I sure. I did this because um, to take it back a little. You know, grew up in a great place playing golf. Went to St Andrews, played the old course. You know, a lot being a student there, and just sort of fell in love with like, well, what makes a great golf course? And then I spent a little time working at the Renaissance Club. I had four great years working at the Renaissance Club in Scotland, which was my first ever job in golf, um, helping them with their membership side. And I got to know Tom Doak through that just a little um, because he was doing some new holes there um, down by the water and the Scottish Open there was this year. So I got talking with Tom and Kai Golby and Eric Iverson and I just really got into it. And then Golf Club Atlas and started sort of geeking out on that. Um, And that's what really got me into architecture. I was like, well, where's a good place to start? And Tom was good enough. We played at North Barrett together, which he loves. And he was good enough to mention a few places and with a confidential guide that, you know, he's famously written sort of like the gourmet choice courses that you have to go and see. And this is what I really like about the list, because that would take me to a location and invariably I'd go to play that course. But then I'd play one or two courses around it as well. Um, and if it wasn't for the list, I'd maybe not go to that location. Mm-hmm. So do you know what I mean? So yeah, that, exactly. Uh, if you guys in the U.S., once upon a time, Muirfields in East Lothian appeared on the list. You know, for the first time, probably in the 80s, I'm guessing, Muirfield appears in the World Top 100. And American clients read that and they go, hey, I want to go and play Muirfield. 
And when they're at Muirfield, the locals say to them, hey, you've got to go and play North Berwick down the street. So then they start playing North Berwick, and fast forward 15 years, then North Berwick starts to get on the list. So it, over time, the lists get better and better and better. And I feel this one is at that point now where it's a really pure list. Well, what goes into making a list or, or the, you know, these, uh, every publication has got a different criteria and stuff, but it's not, it's not a bunch of people sitting around a room saying, Oh, Pebble beach moves up this year. And you know, so-and-so like there's a scoring system with it. What is it like for golf magazine and what, how would you evaluate that process? Would you say it's, it's strong? How would you tweak it if it's different? How does your personal ranking differ from that as well? Well, obviously no. Well, I'm very, uh, I feel honored, almost like privileged to be on the rater panel. And there's, I think it's sort of 75, 80 on it. Um, and we were given free reign and there was no group think in the way that, you know, you have to assess shot values. I mean, excuse my French, but what the F does the shot value mean really? Like <laughs> I, I get confused by all that chatter. It's, um, when you're at a golf, I think they've got a spread of people and I can read a few names out cause it's published. Um, you know, out of these names, you've got Tom Doak, Frank Casey Jr. That uh, owns uh, Russell Penner in Ireland. That's awesome. Mike Davis, you know, you'll have heard that name. Ben Cowan, Jurapa Cabot, Kai Golby, Gil Hans, uh, Jim Urbina. You know, you've got some really, really intelligent people in terms of golf uh, and then me. <laughs> but, um, but people would just let to go and say, well, this is what I think's good. And then you rat, you rated it sort of your one through three. You didn't have to put your exact, this is my one, this is my two, this is my three. But you rate your top three, your four to 10, 11 to 25, 26 to 50, 51 to 75, 76 to 100. And then out with that, we had brackets of 50 from 100 to uh, 150, uh, up to 200, 200 to 250, and so on. If you're in the top three, then you get 100 points. No, mm-hmm. If you're 4 to 10, then you get 85 points. 11 to 25, 75 points. So Ran, who uh, collated all the results, pulled everyone's ballot papers together, totted up all the points, and that's what creates the, the rating. So when you look at a rating, and it usually has like a, a an average score, that's where the average score comes from. So Pine Valley, for example, is 94.52. And I think something crazy like 57%, um, which is understandable, of voters put Pine Valley in the top three. Uh, it's almost impossible to knock Pine Valley off the, uh, that top spot. Uh, Cyprus was second and so on. Well, had, yeah, let's see. Like, how, did, uh, how does your list compare to what you know, came out with Golf, with Golf Magazine's rating? I mean, what, what are your top three? Do you remember what you put in those top three? I would have to imagine you do. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, my top three were Muirfield, uh, Royal Melbourne West, and Terry Eaty. And uh, some of those are obvious. Some of them are a pretty punchy shout, so Terry Eaty being so new. But, you know, I just thought I'd be really, really honest. And at the end of the day, it comes down to which courses you really enjoy. And it's all subjective and it's personal choice. Um, I've been lucky enough to play Tariti probably about seven or eight rounds. So I feel like I, I can sort of stand by that. Um, Muirfield, I've played a lot uh, and I love it. And uh, I think, um, you know, the, the routing of the golf course is amazing. Um, the variation's great. Um, Royal Melbourne, the same way. I, I just love the routing of the golf course. Um, I love how it's kind of simple in its design, but you have to take on the trouble to be able to score well. 
Um, so those are the courses I like that sort of they make you think a little bit. And that's what the part of the discussion that that bothers me is like, you know, uh, recently Maginella and Alan Shipnick like went to Australia and New Zealand and they made their personal list, which like looked a lot different than what our personal list looked like. And everyone was like, oh, look, these guys got it all wrong. It's like, no, man, like everyone's got a personal list. You don't have to follow what the order is on the rankings. And I feel like at times that can almost affect your uh, impression of a highly rated golf course is like, I'm the, I know I'm supposed to like this. I'm supposed to like it. This is going to be amazing. And if you don't play great, if you get bad weather and it just doesn't hit you the same way, you end up thinking, wow, that was overrated versus like, if you knew nothing about Shinnecock Hills and rolled up there and played it, you would be amazed by it. So with that kind of spectrum in mind, is there any courses you played that are highly rated on the list that you kind of walked away being like, huh, I really don't see what they're talking about here. Yeah, uh, definitely. And there's some places, well, some of the ones I mentioned earlier that are now not on the list, clearly, you know, something was going on before. I don't want to speculate what, but <laughs> I mean, but they should have been there. You know? we, you, listeners could use their imagination as to what was going on there. Um, other places that I've been to, and I'm clearly wrong because everyone else thinks they're great. Did I love Riviera? Uh, and by saying that right now, am I ever going to be allowed back? I don't. Know. You're wrong. Nope. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> I, I don't know that I love Riviera. Um, I'm not saying it's not top. Well, I mean, we're talking about the best courses in the world. Sure. And for me, it's just there's a there's a patch there in the middle. I think, I think four through eleven, I I love, and then a bit towards the end, I really like. There's a patch. I, I don't really love the start at Riviera. One, two, three. I don't really love. Um, and then there's a patch you sort of feel like you're playing around the driving range. Uh, I don't love that section. But that's not to say I don't think it's the top 100 course in the world. It just, for me, it's not in the top 30. But that's just my personal preference. Which I think is probably different than like this course does not belong in this in this realm, right? Definitely. I mean, I, I think I've joked with you about, you know, I have this phrase top five. So if people say, oh, what's your favorite course? I've got, well, I've got top five and there's 13 courses in my top five. So... <laughs> You could, there could be 500, well, there's literally 430 courses in the conversation uh, for World Top 100 that we vote on. And there's probably even more than that. But at least the people who are voting for it in this instance are people who have seen enough of the very top quality to kind of know what they're talking about. And certainly the golf course designers that know a hell of a lot more than me that I've just been lucky enough to go and visit these places. You know, they've studied, made careers out of it, and they're the guys to really listen to. What if you're if I was to ask you that what's a course you've played that's not on the list has not appeared on a list that you think is like mind blowing that is not on uh, any of these lists? What what's, what's the first course that comes to mind? Um, in a top one hundred, I used I would say uh, I think Peachtree used to be on it. It's now back on it. I thought Peachtree was so good. I think I, I don't mind saying like I voted it. I think uh, in my sort of fifty one to seventy five block, I thought Peachtree was fantastic and the routing of the golf course and everyone always says it, you know, that's where Bobby Jones wanted to take the masters to. So, you know, they, they built that place uh, thinking, okay, we're going to move away from Augusta. If you can get your head around that um, and have it there in Atlanta, because he didn't think it would be popular out in Augusta. So therefore he has made a brilliant golf course. It's, it's not implicit. That it was going to be great, but it is great. Um, I love Yeamans Hall. That's been named in kind of the next best 50. I think Yeamans Hall is fantastic. Far more learned people than me disagree with me on that, but I, I think it's fantastic. I mean, if a Chicago golf club's ranked so highly, I think Yeamans Hall is like a Chicago golf club and a national golf links of the South. Um, and I just don't know why it doesn't get a little bit more love than it does.
if we're looking, yeah, okay. So that's that's one that's not maybe that should be bumped up into the top 100. But anything else on there that's like 50th that you're like, no, 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 this is a top 10 course in the world. And Yemen's might be your example there. Um, yeah. Uh, well, no, Yemen's isn't even a top oh, 100. Yeah. I think it should be, but it's in the next 50. But thinking about the ones that I think should be much higher, I think. Do you know what? This time I think it's about right. Okay. I really, I really do think it's about right. Um, a couple of courses have dropped down a little. I think I, I love Seminole. I had a brilliant day there. That's always one that's talked about, you know, whispered because people are scared of offending. Them. It might have been ranked a little too high. And now I think it's about 34, 35. And I'm very comfortable with that. I'm not sure I was that comfortable with it being just outside the, the top 20. That's a, that's the feedback I feel like I I've never been to Seminole, but that's what I kind of hear. It's like, hey, it's like, it's good. It's just, it's not like, it's not maybe in the deserved company of, a, you know, a top 20 course, whatnot. But we're really knitting picks here. But explain to me, I, I think I kind of understand where where I think you might go with this, but Augusta National is ranked ninth on the list. And for a lot of people, that's the number one course in the world they'd like to play. A lot of that may have to do with how hard it is to get an invite there. But can you explain why it's ninth? It's a spot behind Oakmont, which is I would I've never been to Oakmont either, but I, I how it how it fell four spots in the last year, and I know there's a refresh to the, how the ratings were done, and we'll get into some of that. But can you explain why Augusta would be ninth, and then we can talk about your experience there? Yeah. Um, well, again, I'd just like to reiterate, like the difference between ninth and you know what was it before fifth uh, is not that big. Like we we are absolutely talking about the very very best golf courses on the planet. Mm-hmm. And it just so happens that the people that voted this time, because they don't know what everyone else has voted, we didn't even know each other's names until this thing came out. Uh, it just happens to have dropped down. I kind of have my theory on that, that you know the golf world's gone more to width and firm and fast and Augusta, which in my mind is the number one experience in golf. If, you, if you're lucky enough to go there, um, I, I think you'd be contrary to you'd be trying to be contrary to it's not. But as a golf course. I would probably say I think that's fair. Maybe if I really go out on a limb, maybe it's in the 10 to 20 bracket for me. Is that because, you know, when people see this golf course every April, it is in the most pristine condition possible. But from what I've gathered from people that have played it, you know, not during Masters Week, and I would think Monday after the Masters would be the best possible to win the media lottery would be the best possible way to do it. But when you play it in this time of year in November or, you know, in the winter, the greens aren't that speed. It's not in tournament condition year round, and you play from the member tees, which are sixty four hundred yards, and it's not nearly the same. I was going to say shot value, but you made fun of that phrase. But is that kind of the the your takeaway from the Augusta experience? Uh, well, I would say absolutely play from the member tees because yeah, you know, I know you hit the ball a long way, a good player, so you can play from the back if you want to. I'm never going back there. Well, there's. I meant there's no in between, right? There's no like yeah. sixty-eight hundred yard option. There's no seven thousand yeah. yard option. It's sixty-four or like seventy-five. Yeah, I think I'm not sure if that really plays into it though, because the people that are going, I, I know what you're saying. On it was nice to have something that maybe bridged the gap. It was like a sixty-nine hundred. Yeah. I, I would love that too, but you just you're just happy to be there. Truth be told, I I just feel that a few of the holes. Uh, it's a wonderful golf course, but a few of the holes. They've planted a few more trees. They've tightened it up in places, mm-hmm. and it's because they have this incredible golf tournament every year. But I, I, well, my experience—I've been very, very lucky to to go there twice. 
and the place is in incredible condition. Like, forget the fact that it's outside of the tournament. I'm not saying the greens run as fast. I'm sure the members would like to say that they do. I, I don't know that. I've not played in the Masters, but they, they they were they were really really quick, and the golf course was in impeccable condition. And I played it uh, in January, sort of end of January one year, and then the start of May one year, which is probably a good reflection, uh, a good reference, because that was just a, obviously just a few weeks after the Masters. Uh, and it was in equally good condition. Mm-hmm. I guess to again, we're we are we're on very fine edges with a lot of the things we're talking about here. What I was referring to is some players I've talked to that go up and play it in December or play it a week before the tournament. Say, you know what? I've kind of learned there's no point to that because it's a completely different golf course the next week. So I didn't really. I guess I still don't fully understand the difference between tournament playing condition and non-tournament playing condition at Augusta. But I I have a feeling that people open up that list and say, what the hell? And that's where. Uh, you know, I don't take nobody should take the ratings that seriously, but I think it's a good reflection if a list is showing a lot of volatility year to year because I think you can look at it the wrong way and say, well, what the hell did Augusta do to deserve falling four spots? When I would counter that by saying, like, hey, maybe like a fresh set of eyes on these things and different people, which sounds like what was the case, is a good thing. And just sticking to what has always been highly rated, you know, that people might not have got it right when the, the first time these lists came out. So it's 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 okay to see some volatility in it um, if that's a you know if there's a different way that it has been evaluated. Do you see that similarly? Well, yeah, and the other way, uh, I'm I'm always a glass half full guy, and instead of people seeing it as like, oh, isn't it terrible? What have Augusta done wrong? They dropped four spots, and I know you're not saying that, but it, let's look at it a different way. What's Oakmont done, or Royal Melbourne, or Royal County Down, or National Golf Links, or Shinnecock? How have they improved? How are they now more highly regarded as just as a pure golf course? Because none of the other trappings matter in this. How are they ranked higher? Oakmont cleaned out a bunch of trees. So <laughs> Oakmont's wide open now in terms of the vistas. It's still an extremely difficult golf course, uh, but it's firm and fast, and those are the playing conditions. Um, so the golf course is playing. That's the trend in golf now is to sort of open things up, have firm and fast conditions, uh, and for it to play like that. And exactly the same thing could be said of Shinnecock, you know, and National Golf Links of America. I mean, National was nowhere near the top 10 in the world you know 20 years ago look how that's come up because they had this tree program to remove all the trees and and widen things up they don't have really tight you know contrived fairways and that's not to say augusta does but there are definitely some holes that pinch in a little for me like 17 you know on the drive it really pinches in now at driver length and and that's contrived it didn't used to be like that Mm -hmm. um you know seven you, you it's really wide open most holes and then you stand on seven and it's just really really tight dead straight hole I'm not sure what sort of options that gives you other than just drilling one absolutely straight. And, nope. and that's fine for a tournament play. I was going to say, yeah, that, that's exactly why. You answered the question pretty perfectly. I think that, that what they've done to that course to make it play tougher for tournament play is, is, is probably factoring in part of the reason of why it would be sliding down the list uh, over the years and that it's for, for amateurs it's just it's very very difficult and the old style of play was very different and much more designed for the members when it when it was when it was uh, built but what's the experience like I mean we touched on some of the parts of it but what's it like playing Augusta man what's your, what's the story you tell when you talk about playing at Augusta you you raved about the overall golf experience because I've heard different things on like you feel like you maybe are kind of walking on eggshells while you're there so nah, take nah. us there from full experience to what it's like to play the course 
Yeah, well, kind of like the more fun stories because everyone's kind of heard that, like, which I will tell, but it's more kind of the lead up to it. Everyone's kind of got everyone that I've met that's done, you know, this silly thing of the top 100 has got a story of how it happened. And I was down in Florida at the, I'd been down for the PJ show and I was overplaying at the Medalist, obviously another lovely course in Florida with a great friend of mine. And out of nowhere, this uh, member that I know from Augusta called me and he played with me at North Berwick the summer before. And, you know, you don't solicit, you don't say anything that seems sure. like you're asking to go because they get that all the time. Maybe that's why I haven't gotten the call yet. <laughs> I <laughs> so keep telling like, everyone I want to go. Yeah. So he's like, hey, you know, I heard you're in Florida. Do you want to come up to Georgia for the weekend? I'm like, oh, wow, it's finally happening. Wow, cool. And then it dawned on me that my really good friend that I was with also knew this member. But, like, how do I break it to him that I just got a call to go and clearly he kind of wasn't going. <laughs> and I spent a day with him. We played at the medalist. We played a wolf game with a bunch of members at the medalist, lost money. And I was just dreadful. I, I couldn't hit a shot. And he goes, what was the mat with you today? We're driving away in the car. I was like, dude, I don't know how to tell you this. I got invited to play Augusta. I'm playing on Saturday. And he's like, I'm so pleased for you. Da, 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 da. I was like, yeah, but I'm playing with Mr mr x who he knows and i just felt oh that's really bad uh-huh. and he took it like an absolute champ he goes i'm so pleased for you i'll get there one day blah 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 blah. buy me a hat and then we ended up in naples the next day and i realized that i couldn't get a flight direct to augusta so i was like wow i might l- lose my clubs here so i rented a car from naples florida and drove solid up to augusta like 10 hours or something crazy. I think I stopped for 20 minutes to, uh, for a restroom break or something. Just flying up the highway, just music blaring, I imagine. Yeah, and I got like the worst rental car in the world as well. So as you know, the one that looks like the sort of Adams Family vehicle, it's kind of like a dome shape thing. <laughs> so I got this car and I get up there. I actually stayed at Champions Retreat the night before and uh, some they'd let me stay at the cottages because uh, the member I played with lives in Augusta. So then it started to rain overnight. So I'm ready to go crazy on the hotel room that I'm staying in and just smash everything up because he calls and says, we're not going to play tomorrow. <laughs> and he, he actually called and I was like, really? And he was, yeah, it's going to rain. I was like, oh, no. And what was great is he goes, oh, let's spend tomorrow with each other. We'll go to my late cast. There's a few chores I have to do. And what was great about that is I got all of my Augusta questions out of the way. So, you know, all the things you ask, you know, the things not to ask, but all the things you want to ask about the tournament and his experiences there, uh, I got those out of the way. So then when we played the next day and the course was bone dry by that point because the sub air like sucked everything out. I just walked around in this daze of like happiness with a big goofy smile on my face. And at the end, he said to me, oh, this is great. You didn't kind of talk away the experience like a lot of people do, asking questions about, oh, did Larry Mize chip from here? Is that, which is the cottage that Rory hit it into? Blah, blah, blah. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really happy for you. But that was only because I spent the day with him before. I'm, I would have been like a kid in a sweet mm-hmm. shop if it had all the questions out. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it, it was super cool. And then, um, so at that time, we, we played the course. And then he goes, come on, let's go and play the par three. So got to do that, which was equally cool. Obviously, dinner in the clubhouse um and you see the, all the champions leave a, a club on the wall in the dining room so tiger's driver when he won in 97 is directly above or below i can't remember now exactly trevor immelman's from 2004 i think it was a four immelman one. Oh wait, yeah uh, oh wait, it was a, sorry sorry and his drive ahead was huge compared to <laughs> tiger's like in that 10 years technology had just gone so far yes it has gone a long way 
What? Uh, all right, let's do some other uh, some other golf courses as well. Why is Pine Valley the number one course in the world? And I know you didn't have it in your top three. Understandable. That is not. Uh, no one has to is set to follow that list by uh, by the letter of the law. But why is it ranked number one in your mind? I think as, if you're as objective as you possibly can be about a golf course, because we're all humans. You know, other stuff comes into it. There is just no weak holes out there. But you go as a good player. Uh, to, to play Pine Valley. Um, if you're a slightly lesser player, you're going to have a really tough day. So for me, you want to go to a place where everyone can kind of enjoy it, which is what I love about the old course, um, you know, Royal Melbourne, Tariti that I mentioned before, that anyone can play. Pine, why I think it's the best course in the world is because people go there and there's, you have to execute every single shot in the bag to play Pine Valley and play it well. So I can respect it, and it's certainly in my top 10. For me, it's not in my top three for that reason, but I know why everyone votes it because there isn't a weak hole out there. Um, it asks you to do everything. The par threes are fantastic. The par fours are fantastic. The par fives are fantastic. And it's in incredible condition. Yeah, that's that's my impression walking away from it was this was not the most fun I've ever had playing golf, but this is probably the best golf course, if that makes sense. Absolutely makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. Well, Terry, I'm glad to find brother, a brother in arms over Terry Eady. I feel like I'm, you know, I, I, as going back on what I said in the beginning, like lists are all personal, rankings are all personal, and it doesn't really matter when it comes down to it. But you know, sometimes people ask us for advice on golf courses and ask us to rank golf courses. So I, I, I try to do it as best I can. But pointing out like this is object, this is like what I think about it. This is subjective, not objective. And I, 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 the most, I kind of separate, you know, the categories like you mentioned as well. Like I, old courses and new courses just need to be different categories. I think, I, how do you compare St. Andrews to Terraiti? Like they're both my favorite, just a totally different experiences. But I say Terraiti is my favorite modern course I've played. So I've, I've mentioned on this podcast many times what my reasons are for that. But why does it rate so highly for you? Um, I just think like, you know, it's such a great walk. Like to me, golf's all about the walk. Like golf is all about the walk and the people you're with. And Terry is just this incredible walk. And then when you get kind of really geeky about the design, it just has this lovely flow to it that nothing feels jarred. Uh, you know, what you would deem as kind of connector holes fit in beautifully. You know, there's really nice elevation changes. Uh, there's great variation in the holes, like the third hole there, that great sort of punch ball hole where you, sort of, you can chase it in and it feeds down into the bowl. So like a good and weak player can play that hole. Then the very next hole, you've kind of got a short par four where someone like you, so like, you know, you'd be able to drive that. Um, and for the rest of us, kind of you have to navigate the bunkers. It's got a really fun set of greens. I kind of really like the way that there's no real bunkers there. You can kind of, you know, it's there's a lot of sand, but, you know, you can ground your club and, you know, they're pretty chilled out atmosphere there too. Um, I think like if you're in a footprint, you just kind of kick it out and, and you play. So for the purists, I'm not saying that's the reason I really, really like it. Purists will be rolling hmm. over uh, or rolling their eyes right now. But I just, that's more about the feel of the place. I suppose I'm talking about the course. It's just the variation. So, you know, you've got doglers that go both ways. You've got a, a completely blind hole. It's unusual for a lot of modern design. Uh, you know, on the 12th, the kind of long par four where you hit over a rise, which is almost almost kind of mimics the tee shot at 11 at Muirfield, where you just hit blind over the top onto the fairway. Uh, the par threes are all worlds. Par threes are really important to me because I, I feel when you go to a golf course, unless you're one of these guys that's got a photographic memory, a truly great golf course you can I can remember every single hole on. 
but I'm not one of these guys that can remember every hole and every course I've ever played. I do usually remember the set of par threes, and I think the the par threes at Terry Eater are pretty special. Yeah, that's what, and you kind of touched on something there that I find, you know, it's hard to delineate between like the playing experience and the golf course, right? But like the second I stepped on that golf course, the ocean is like being piped in like like through speakers. It's so loud out there. It's so blue. The white sand and that scene and that setting was as like a beautiful of a setting as I've seen on a golf course. Now, some purists will say like, you know, it's the old argument against Pebble Beach. If it didn't have an ocean, would it be in the top 10 or whatever? Like, how do you do you even bother trying to separate out the golf course from like the overall experience of being at a place? As a golfer, I'd be lying if I said I, I separated that experience. And I don't care who you are. You're kind of lying. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like you turn up, if it's a walk on the water, is that better than a walk in the woods? Most of the time for me, yes. If you can hear the sea, that's a great thing. And that's what I grew up with. So I'm used to that and I love that. But for me, it's more like the playing conditions. I want to play somewhere that's really firm and fast. And I was just, I was just in Korea a couple of weeks ago and I played at South Cape Owners Club. Um, which is just like jaw-droppingly beautiful. And I kind of joked with someone the other day, you know, we kind of seemed, you know, you have the golden age of golf course design. And I feel like we're in almost like the Instagram age of golf course design at the moment where every hole needs to be this incredible picture. And South Cape kind of pulls that off. And I was lucky enough to play with the owner. And he says, look, if you're honest with me, what do you think? And I said, well, visually it's incredible. If I can pull teeth in the playing conditions, it needs to be firmer. I don't like the striped fairways. That's my personal preference. If it was faster, if it played a little faster, I, I would love this place. I'd be falling over about it. And he kind of, you know, slightly disagreed with that, but it's his place, whatever yeah. he asked me. Um, so I think to me, it's more about playing conditions. If somewhere's firm and fast, I really get a kick out of that and seeing the ball kind of roll around on the ground and, you know, I went to play Somerset Hills uh, about a month or so ago to play in a tournament with a great friend of mine. And I played there a few years ago, and I don't remember it being as good. And I think the reason why it was so good for me this time is because the, the superintendent's really taking it to the next level. And those guys have got a big job on their hands in, in getting this firm and fast playing condition, which is definitely in fashion at the moment, thankfully, because uh, that's what I think most of us want. Mm-hmm. Did you have the uh, the crushed pistachios at the turn at South Cape? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. They were great. <laughs> I played with I played with the owner there as well. It was like one of the wildest golf experiences I've ever had. He's about a I don't know what he is now, but maybe seventy eight year old yeah. billionaire uh, Korean guy that is like a fashion mogul, and um, he takes his sun protection very very seriously. But that course, I uh, I remember asking him I was like, what was the most difficult part of building this golf course? And he said moving the graves. Like they had to move actual graves to build that golf course. <laughs> yeah, I remember the other thing I really liked there was the kind of persimmon, which is a cool. I said you need to make this a thing. So I think it's after about the fifteenth hole, you go in that, you know, the glass kind of tea house that's sort of shaped like the Titanic ship. Mm-hmm. That, uh, before you play that incredible par three, and he brought out this frozen fruit, or his staff brought out this frozen fruit in a bowl, and I thought it was ice cream originally, and it's a persimmon which is this orange fruit, which is cool. And he didn't realize the golf connection with the word persimmon. I was like, I was like, this needs to be your thing. Kind of like the burger dog um, Olympic. This needs to be your thing as the persimmon, um, at, you know, at this hole looking out. But 
awesome place. Well, that stretch of holes from like 11 to 16 at South Cape is about as close to being to Cyprus as I've been, or uh, of course that I've played. Uh, like that up that dogleg left Cape hole, uh, the up the hill Cape hole. I, forget, I think that's 14, or maybe it's 15. There was absolutely sick. But let's go to Cyprus now. What is I forget? Sorry, was it in your top three? Of course, as you rated. It, no, it wasn't. Okay. I mean, firmly in my top ten. Though, okay. What is what makes Cypress Point special? What makes it number two on the list? Um, again, the variation. It's all about variation. So, and the flow and the routing of the golf course. Um, and it's just a magical environment. So you're there, and you hear all the sounds that we were just talking about about Tariti. You get that Cypress and Spades certainly towards the end of the round. I think what's really special about Cypress, and I'm rehashing what everyone else has always said is the different landscapes that you sort of, you know, you hit over the road to start with, which is pretty funky. And, you know, then you're sort of off sort of in that open land for a little while. Then you're into the trees kind of, you know, when you get to about four and then the two back-to-back par fives. I think there's just, there's a lot of, certainly in the day, like original holes out there and sort of a place that had drivable par fours before they were fashionable. I, I just feel like the environment there is what makes it so special and that gets people going because it's so unbelievably beautiful. So I think as soon as you walk in, you want to enjoy it because of that. And then the golf and the green complexes especially just kind of really blow you away and um, exceed all expectations in that respect. What was the hardest course of all of them to get on? The hardest course of all of them to get on is one I didn't get on. So I originally set out to do the 2017 list and I made this rule that I wouldn't cold call anywhere or email or anything like that. It'd all be introductions. And I quickly realized that I was never going to meet someone from Kerry Packer's family. So Elliston in Australia. That's what I thought might be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I didn't even try because, you know, whatever. When, do you, when are you going to stumble across someone that's uh, a family? For those of you listening that don't know about Elliston, it's owned by the, the Packer family in Australian billionaire. And um, I think he's passed away, but his family have this incredible apparently incredible course about six hours north of sydney um so no sure one day it'll maybe happen but um i suppose out of the courses that are more i didn't meet someone at camargo for quite a while in cincinnati which sort of leads on to the crate actually like if it can sort of go off on a bit of a tangent it's about sort of the trips that you have to take like geographically to be able to play the top 100 you kind of do all these clusters so you can sort of do the long island trip the san francisco trip the la trip and so on but then you come to all these courses in the midwest or uh, the central u.s you know you've got southern hills so i did this crazy trip where i flew from edinburgh where i live to tulsa uh, landed played southern hills drove stayed in hutchison kansas played prairie dunes drove stayed in uh, north platte nebraska uh, which is an interesting place. Uh, woke up in the morning, drove an hour, arrived at Sand Hills at the same time that I left North Platte because you kind of crossed the timeline. Played mm-hmm. there, got in the car straight after, drove five hours to Denver, got on a plane to Milwaukee, rented a car, drove an hour up to near Western Straits, slept, woke up, played Western Straits, drove two and a bit hours down to O'Hare in uh, Chicago, dropped the car, flew from there to Columbus, played the golf club, drove up to... Um, Toledo, Ohio, played Inverness, drove to the airport and flew home from Detroit. And that was like seven day trip. Oh my God. I mean, that, that's when you do get white line fever and you, you completely lose your mind and you're insane. And I'll be, again, brutally honest, there's only so much of the golf course architecture you actually take in at that point. 
But, uh, I was going to say that has to diminish the, the experience at least a little bit. But when I, I, I forget when I saw you last, but I think you were getting ready to embark on another crazy leg, like a hard to reach leg. And that's kind of the underrated part of this is like you, you kind of had to tick off a lot at once. If I remember right, it was something like you were flying from Scotland to Dubai to China or something like that. Can you do you remember this leg of the trip? Yeah, yeah, that was that was actually that's a great question because it's another one. So that trip that I just talked about, I called I dubbed it the mop up trip because like nowhere fit together and it was just been mopping up. Then the one to China was to play Shankin uh, Bay on Hainan Island, uh, which is actually unfortunately just dropped out. And I think it's a really great core Crenshaw course down there in China, very very private, uh, and something to do with the government. One of the holes you can read up about it. One of the holes is no longer there. Um, so anyway, I flew, it was actually from Edinburgh through Charles de Gaulle in Paris, and I flew to, I don't know, somewhere in China, then rerouted down, played there. Then, you know, great experience. So the next day I flew to Korea and played Nine Bridges the next day. And that is actually, Nine Bridges, Hand on Heart is one of the courses. Before I went there, I thought, there's no way this course should be in the list, blah, 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 blah. You know, there's no way this course in Korea should be in the top 100. And I was pleasantly surprised when I played it. I'm not saying it should be top 50, which I think it used to be. Um, but it was a way, way better golf course than, than I thought it would be. And a lot of the players that play in the tournament think it's fantastic as well. It's cool if you get like a windy day, you know, the, the fairways are wide. If you, if it's soft, like you, like we've been talking about, it's kind of lame. But if you get a windy day with some crosswinds, they got really wide fairways and some cool holes out there. It's not... It was way overrated at 41 or whatever it originally came out at, but now it has fallen 50-some spots with the new rankings. But I, I don't hate it in the top 100. It was not a top 50 course, but yeah. uh, I agree. I think it was it was catching a lot of flack for being that high on the list, and I think there are probably some shenanigans that are involved in that, but uh, I'm fine with it way, way down the list. But Yeah, me too. I think it's in the conversation at least, so I'm happy to still see it there. But then after that, I flew to Japan and I played. I uh, flew into Kobe, and this was kind of a funny story that I'll tell you another time. But uh, about the gentleman that I was with, but I was with this Dutch guy called Dick uh, Dick Homer, uh, spelt Gomer, but pronounced Homer for that. I met playing golf with at Royal Hague, and this is the great thing about golf, right? I met a fifty-seven-year-old guy I've never met in my life, and then I bumped into him a year later in Scotland, and I said, "Oh, hey, I'm going to do Korea and uh, Japan this winter in October, November. Do you want to come with?" I'd never met, I'd literally met the guy for four hours ever before in my life. <laughs> and he came with me. And we had this amazing trip. So we flew into Kobe, and then I'll try and do his Dutch accent. He's like, hey, Shyman, you know, in Scotland, you're driving the left. In Japan, they're driving the left, so you get to drive. I was like, oh, yeah, thanks very much. <laughs> so we hire this car, and we drive, and we played Hirono and Naruo, um, which historically was a top one of course. Then we got the plane, um, we flew to Tokyo, and we played Tokyo Golf Club that had just been redone by Gil Hans, which I thought was really cool. It's unfortunately, just dropped out. I guess not enough people have been there since it's been redone. Uh, Kawana, which I thought was great. And where else did we do it, though? I'm forgetting somewhere. Oh, we played Yokohama, which I thought was solid. And then I thought to myself, you know what? I'm never going to get on this Alston place, so let's look at the first list without Alston on it. And it was 2013, or the most recent list, and it was 2013. And if it changed to that list, I would only have to play a couple more courses. But unfortunately, one of them was Royal Adelaide, which is obviously in Australia. And I'd already kind of cleaned up Australia and New Zealand, but I just had to swallow it. And I literally got on a plane from Japan, from Tokyo to Adelaide, 
that day. And um, to play Royal Adelaide, and I ended up playing with the captain. I'm really glad I did because I love the club. The, the captain, the company was great. Um, you know, Alistair McKenzie, course, what's not to like? And then I got on a plane, and this is where I got crazy again because I changed that list. Now, Durban Country Club in South Africa was on that list. I was like, well, given I've come this far, I might as well fly from Adelaide to Durban, South Africa. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, flew, I flew from Royal Adelaide, having been there for one day. I then flew to Durban Country Club or Durban in South Africa for one day and put this together by email because you can pay and play there. And they found out it was from Scotland. So they're like, oh, the captain wants to play with you. I was like, oh, cool. So then I had what was called the email uh, politeness tug of war. So this guy's like, you have to come and stay at my house. I was like, you know, sir, that's very, very kind of you, but I don't know you. I, I couldn't possibly. And then I ended up doing it anyway. <laughs> so I went to stay with this guy. And we got hammered that first night. <laughs> he had such a great time. And then we played golf the next day and the pro joined us. And we teed off at eight in the morning. We whipped around in three hours. I met a bunch of people for beers in the clubhouse afterwards, some of which I'm still in touch with. And they're coming over to Scotland and we're going to play like a match against my club, which will be fun. But then I just flew home. So my trip was Scotland to China one day, to, to Korea one day to Japan for about five days, then flew up from Japan to Australia for one day, from Australia to South Africa for one day, and then flew home to Scotland from there. So that was the craziest one by far. Unbelievable, man. Do you have any estimation on how much money you spent doing this quest? <laughs> um, my fun answer to that is it cost me a pair of earrings for my wife. <laughs> <laughs> she sounds like a pretty great wife uh, what if you were to i guess give advice to anyone that kind of wanted to play a lot of golf courses in the world or kind of just at least you know a lot of people dream of playing these places but and they i'm sure people come up to you and say like how do you get on all these courses but what's an overarching piece of advice you could give people if there if there is one i would say like don't get too hung up on it like if you really really want to focus on it then pick one list and stick to it i think that's really good advice and then as you kind of get into what i call the nervous 90s you, you then you can say okay is there a better way of doing this so if a new list comes out don't be too precious swallow your pride if a new list means you're like three courses closer um, then just switch to the new list it's no big deal no one's gonna hold you to task for it you're doing this for fun i'm saying um, not even for list seekers but like somebody that's played two of the top 100 and is like man i would really like to play some of these world-class golf courses how does you know me off the street get to get on some of these places unfortunately there's no easy answer to that right and um, the, the private clubs it's just i've just been very lucky to meet some wonderful people I guess just be yourself, and if you're fun to play golf with, which I hope I am, but if you, you if you kind of play fast, play with anybody, you're social after the game, you keep in touch with people, I always write a lovely thank you note. I always, if I'm hosted somewhere, I always take, you know, invariably a bottle of whiskey if I'm coming from Scotland, or I'll offer to pay for the host caddy because maybe they've come out, he or she's come out specifically just to host me. They might not have played that day. So I guess that's a good way to think about it. There's, like, there's just general etiquette that I think is really important. So writing a nice like handwritten thank you note afterwards, I think goes a long way. Um, and then people will look to help you out if it's a thing you really want to do. And that's what I feel like I've learned along the way too, is places that, you know, obviously we're extremely fortunate that we get some decent access to, to a lot of places, but people's willingness to extend hospitality and the, the hospitality element of golf, right? Where uh, not all members, but some members of really nice clubs 
almost feel like it's part of their duty as member of that club to share these places with other people. And not every club has that mindset, but I'm wondering if you kind of felt that along the way. Oh, definitely. People are very proud and we're all kindred spirits, right? We're, uh, there's not many people that I've really met through golf that I don't like. Very, very few. I could count on one hand, I think. Um, I could count on two, but yeah, continue. <laughs> but those, those people don't usually hang around too much. And that's true of both the golf industry and of uh, you know the club game of golf when you're going around hanging out at clubs. Every club's got a handful of those guys, granted. But once you're in a certain circle of friends and you're being introduced to people, they're not going to introduce you to a bad guy. You're always going to end up with good people. And golf's this kind of wonderfully reciprocal game that I'll host anyone that I know through a friend who wants to come and play at my course, I'll happily host them. Um, you know, if someone like vouches for someone and like, oh, they happen to be in your corner of the world, you know, for whatever reason, the tee sheet's full. Can you, can you take them out for me? I'm always happy to do that. And I guess if you sort of pay it forward in that way, then, you know, good things happen. I don't know. I think that's what's so wonderful about golf. You can play with anyone of any gender, age, handicap, but as long as you're the same kind of, let's go and have fun mindset, you'll get along with most people. Yep. No, that makes sense. Um, made it this far in. Can you just please just, can you, are you willing to just trash one course on this list? <laughs> Some place that rub you the wrong way or something uh, like that. Let me think about this. Um, uh, you know, to quote Sean Connery, uh, like, uh, well, <laughs> Sean Connery joke over here in Scotland, a gentleman never tells, but um, I don't know. I don't know looking at the list. I've got it in front of me, this new list, so I could refer to it. No one, everywhere's been super polite. And I'm not just saying that everywhere's treated me like gold that I've been to. It would certainly be very unkind for me to say that of a place that uh, a yeah. member me. I would say of a course that I've paid money for, though, like a big resort course, unfortunately, or, or fortunately, They've all treated me like gold. I'm looking through it now. I mean, a couple of the ones I mentioned earlier, I feel bad because, again, I was treated really nicely there. You know, paid my money, played, had a great time. Like Otavis Dunes in Portugal, it shouldn't have been there. Um, Some other causes that have dropped out of the list probably shouldn't have been there either. Um, But, uh, you know, I'll sort of keep those names to myself. That's the one that really stuck out to me on the trip. That was like, wow, what is this doing in anywhere near this list? No, that makes sense. Uh, do you have the people treat me really well? I will underline that. Do you have one favorite go-to memory from from all the all the quest the, the whole quest? Probably finishing, like in terms of when I focused on the quest and finishing at Morfontaine. But you know, things like driving in at Sand Hills—that's a really special drive. People talk about Magnolia Drive. You know, you you see that every year on TV. Driving into Sand Hills is unbelievable. Um, that, I mean, you just see golf holes everywhere, like ones you could, you know, scratch up on a piece of paper yourself. But I would say finishing at Morfontaine was was really special because I had two really great friends with me um, that came to Paris to finish the list with me, uh, and that that was really special. But I, I guess if I had one round left to play, it would always be North Berwick. Uh, I, wow. That that will probably. I've been so lucky to grow up there. So lucky. I was getting ready to ask, like, if you had, if you had, of all the top 100s, if you're playing golf tomorrow and you get to pick any one and you could be transported there, it would be North Berwick? Um, well, if I had 450 grand New Zealand, maybe Tariti, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I pro- yeah, North Berwick will, 
uh, if I get to choose, North Berwick will be my final round of golf without question. Um, if I had one course to play every day for the rest of my life, that would be North Berwick without question. Yeah, I can echo that sentiment. Are you willing and able to tell the Tom Doak story from you guys playing North Berwick together? <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, I'd forgotten about that. That's good. Um, I haven't forgotten this story. I love this story. Well, it might not. Uh, hopefully it comes across this way. But... So, yeah, Tom's building new holes at Renaissance. And like I said earlier, he loves North America. So I said, let's, let's go play this afternoon if you want to. You know, And the real secret behind that was I just wanted to hear his comments on the course. But anyone that's met Tom, like if you get him on topic, he's, you know, talks and talks and talk about golf courses and his database is like, incredible in his mind, like his memory. He's maybe not the most generous with his words in other situations. <laughs> he's not, you know, he's not a chatty guy. So we go and play North Berwick and Eric Iverson and Kai Golby, two of his associates who are really uh, highly regarded, came and played too. And they're like really, they're a bit more like me, you know, really overly chatty and, and we're having a great time. And Tom's not really said anything. And we're on the 12th hole, uh, which is my favorite hole at North Berwick. Not necessarily the best, I just love the hole. And I just said out loud, I was like, oh, this is pretty much my favorite hole in the golf course. And, uh, you know, Eric and, uh, and Kai very kindly sort of chimed in and said, yeah, I think it's really good too, this, 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 whatever. Tom still said nothing. And then we get to the 13th tee, which for anyone that's played North Berwick, is our, uh, you'll know, but for others, it's our famous hole called the Pit. And it has a wall that runs kind of almost asymmetric across uh, the length of the green. People say it cuts in front of the 13th green. It's called the Pit. So we're all just having this great time, and Tom's, Tom's not spoken for like an hour. And he just stands there, looks straight ahead, and in almost this like monotone voice, he just goes, this is pretty much my favorite hole in all of golf. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, I don't know, sorry, Tom, I know you're listening, but, um, well, probably, but it, it, it was almost like a machine just spitting it out because he'd not spoken for an hour. And then all of a sudden he just opened up. And he just started talking about the back nine at North Berwick. And we went for, you know, beers and some food in North Berwick afterwards. And he was so kind with his time. And he just sat there and talked about what makes North Berwick great, really without me asking questions. But it was so funny at the time how he'd not said anything. And then he threw out this huge statement that is like his favorite par four, I think he said, or favorite hole in golf was the 13th at North Berwick. And Eric and Kai and I kind of all looked at each other, just kind of nodded and we're like, okay <laughs> that's a pretty well, good deal <laughs> that's what i love about it the most is like that you know for somebody that he has seen like legitimately almost all of the golf courses and for him to call it his favorite hole in golf and that being almost the only thing he said all day was that that i'll just never forget that story i love that story yeah so. it's, it's pretty it's pretty funny but um the other funny stories is like you know you go to places like sunningdale like the halfway house sunningdale that i always have a good chuckle about is um Famously at Sunningdale, you have a sausage, and they call, almost like call it the sausage shot after ten at Sunningdale, and they have a sausage convener that like of a sausage committee that chooses the sausages that they serve. And I always have this like brilliant imagery of some guy walking around London, handed out a business card that his name's like I don't know, you know, DJ the sausage convener at Sunningdale Golf Club, and it's like. <laughs> like funny quirky stuff like that is like the interesting things about these places that you visit oh man i feel like we could do a whole nother second part of just all the cool little random things you've seen uh in a lot of places but i i think you've done it i think you've gone an hour without sounding like a douche talking about the top 100 golf courses <laughs> in the world and uh 
it's a topic that I'm sure you get asked about a lot, but I think uh, our listeners will really enjoy hearing the stories from the road and how you did it and uh, perspective on uh, golf courses that we all love chasing. So thanks, Simon, for the time. And uh, we'll be seeing you here in a, in a few months in, uh, in April. Yeah, we'll see you over in, in April in St. Andrews. We're looking forward to that and having all the, the refugees over. It's going to be a great time. Uh, cheers, man. Really looking forward to it. Okay. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. 